Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. Tonight, we're broadcasting to over 60 countries. And we're broadcasting from the middle of the third most important center in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, angels, VCs, and incubators, Silicon Beach in Los Angeles, California. This is where technology and entertainment intersect. And I want to thank you for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. I really do appreciate it. Now, the economic engine of all countries is driven by small business. And that's why it's always astounding to me that governments and established companies don't pour a hell of a lot more money into funding for startups and don't invest heavily in incubators and accelerators and encourage all of the extraordinary talent that's out there that's looking for opportunities. You know, if we've shown... Um, what small business can grow into. Just look at the Googles and the Amazons and and Facebooks and whatever. They all started as small businesses. We need to give more small businesses the incentive and the wherewithal to grow into big businesses. We, small business employs most of the population and we should be encouraging it more. And as with so many important initiatives today, Google is leading the way. They've established a new division called Area 120, where employees can build their own startups. And here's how Area 120 works. First, teams within Google will submit a business plan and apply to join Area 120. And if successful, the teams will get to work full-time on their idea for a few months. They'll then have the opportunity to pitch Google for additional funding and create a new company, which Google will invest in. Now, the name Area 120 is a reference to Google's famous 20% time, um, which was described at the time as Google encouraging their employees, in addition to their regular projects, to spend 20% of their time working on what they think will most benefit Google. This empowers the employees to be more creative and innovative. And many of Google's significant advances have happened in that manner. You know, big 20% successes have included development of Google News, Gmail and AdSense. But there's been questions for years as to whether this 20% time still actually exists at Google. Well, Area 120 seems to be a bid to encourage more of that entrepreneurial spirit, getting people to stay within Google, which was also part of the rationale behind the creation of Alphabet, which is the larger parent company that Google is now part of. So when Google debuted Alphabet last year, one of its goals was empowering great entrepreneurs and companies to flourish, some of whom might might not want to build their companies within the vehicle proper. Another great initiative that Google must be applauded for. We hope that many more companies will adopt this initiative. It's very cool. Last week I mentioned that um, I'd been offered or had come across a couple of new initiatives which I thought were fantastic. One of them I mentioned last week was an engine and uh, today I got a copy of Motor Trend and uh, Motor Trend's future tech highlights from the annual Society of Automotive Engineers which SAE convention that was in Detroit last week. The Advanced Engine Dynamics Multifier Engine, which I talked about, received four stars and the number one pick as the highlight of the convention. 
Now, what um, Advanced Engine Dynamics multi-fire engine is, it's a tiny 330-pound gasoline-powered two-stroke opposed piston eight-cylinder actual engine. And it produces more than 660 pound foot per litre at 750 RPM in a compact package that has 70% fewer precision machine parts, has no valve train, and hence could be one-tenth as costly to build as a conventional engine of similar output. Now, I'm reaching out to the developer of um, the Motor Trend engine and uh, I'm hoping to have him as a guest on the show over the next few weeks so look out for that but the advanced engine dynamics multifier engine um, was the pick of the of all of the tech highlights at the annual society of automotive engineers convention which is fantastic achievement um, founder lawsuits seem to be the new normal in the startup world. It's hard to think of a hot consumer startup that's been successful that hasn't been sued for some by somebody claiming to be one of the inventors or owning a chunk of the company. Yikyak is the newest startup to settle with a frat brother who claimed he was cheated out of one third of the startup. You know, you might remember that similar battles have taken place at Facebook, Snapchat and Cruise, which is a car company that recently got bought by GM for a reported price north of $1 billion. Now, Yik Yak just settled a lawsuit with Douglas Walser, who claimed he was cheated out of one third of the startup by his frat brothers. Walser claimed to be the forgotten founder of the anonymous gossip app and said he was cheated out of one-third of the company by Droll and Buffington, who are the current listed founders. So the two, the two frat members, Buffington and Droll, allegedly offered to buy out Worstler's one-third stake. Worstler refused, and then Droll and Buffington created a new company without him. Now, Yik Yak's raised $73.5 million in financing and was, for a while anyway, one of the top social networking apps in the App Store. When the lawsuit first came out, Yik Yak was red hot on the startup circuit. Since then, buzz around the company has dwindled a bit. But it all sounds very similar to the tale of Reggie Brown and Snapchat. In fact, Worstler, interestingly enough, hired Brown's lawyer, Lewin Tran, to represent him in the Yik Yak case. It's believed Reggie Brown settled for about a billion dollars. You might also remember the Winklevoss twins who settled with Zuckerberg for $65 million. So um, it seems that in the early days of these things, somebody seems to get cut out but always seems to do pretty well in the end, probably without taking any of the risks. One of the biggest problems facing us today is the ransomware attacks. Now, these ransomware attacks on businesses and individuals, they've risen enormously over the recent years. And the reason, cybersecurity experts say, is that they're relatively low budget, they often ask for as little, you know, they capture your, your data and won't release it unless you pay often as little as 500 bucks. So there's very low stakes and it doesn't require much skill to pull them off. So instead of going after high value, heavily fortified systems like banks or corporations that require complex technological skills to hack, Cyber criminals use ransomware to go straight for those who are likely to pay a few hundred or a few thousand bucks to get their digital lives back. It's a one-to-one -one relationship with a victim. And it's totally anonymous. Kaspersky, I always have trouble with Kaspersky. I don't know why. Kaspersky Lab 
a cybersecurity company, fielded 750,000 attacks last year. That's just among its own clients. And with each type of ransomware, viruses different. Some, like um, CryptoLocker, they boast a 41% success rate, meaning that 41% of victims ended up paying the ransom. Jeez, that's pretty good. That virus earned up to $27 million for its criminal masterminds. Now, cybersecurity experts estimate that there are several million attacks on American computers a year, and the average victim shells out about 300 bucks. According to Symantec, there was a 250% increase in new ransomware available on the black market between 2013-2014. Now, some criminals even license what's known as exploit kits, which are all-inclusive ransomware apps, to individual hackers for a couple of hundred bucks a week. So you get a whole bunch of hackers paying you a couple of hundred bucks a week and you just let them use the ransomware. So, you know... They have the problem and you don't, and you collect a whole bunch of money. As with most computer viruses, victims are often targeted with a fraudulent email, and if hackers can get victims to open an email and then download an attachment, bing, they're in. They can infiltrate the computer and any computer associated with that computer's network. Now, roughly 23% of people open phishing messages and more than 10% then click on the attachments. Silly people. If you get an email, go in and check where it's from. That's the giveaway. Check the email address that it came from. You know, if, if you've got an email from Chase Bank, go and check the email address and you'll find that it's something weird. Don't open the email. Certainly don't open the attachment. Now, sites that are most likely to get people into trouble are those peddling pirated movies, TV and sports games, pornography, or network networks like Tor that facilitate sharing of huge numbers of user files. So in some particularly alarming cases, ransom notes come in over a computer's speakers, and it can often be in a blackmailing form, and the booming voice of a stranger demanding a Bitcoin payment echoes through your office or your living room. So if they've got something on you that they've found in your emails, watch out. In the past year, ransomware attacks have shut down at least three healthcare centres, including one hospital in Los Angeles that paid 17000 to regain access to its patients' records. In March... MedStar Health, the massive $5 billion healthcare juggernaut that operates 10 hospitals in the Washington, D.C. region, saw its computer system knocked offline for days in a ransomware attack. Now, the only way to protect yourself against a ransomware attack is keep your operating system up to date, renew your antivirus software regularly, Back up your files on a daily or a weekly basis at worst and never download anything from an email address you don't recognise. Forget what the brand is on the email. Just because the email looks like a chase email doesn't mean it is. Go and check the, um, the email address and just... Make sure that it's genuine. Now, many cybersecurity experts warn that people should be particularly sceptical of emails with attachments that appear to be from trusted brands like FedEx or Amtrak or a bank when they arrive unexpectedly. Most ransomware schemes require Bitcoin payments, which are untraceable. So you go and report them to law, law enforcement officials and they can't help you. Now... I guess we don't think much about Chinese internet, but um, this week China's media regulator censored an internet star who makes satirical video commentaries, ordering her to cut the swear words out of her monologues. It's all in Chinese. However, 
the buzz around that crackdown seems to have boosted interest from advertisers, not diminished it. The star, nicknamed Pappy Jiang, hosted an auction to sell off video ad slot and associated social promotions around it. The winning $3.4 million bid for a video ad slot was from Lillian Beauty, a new cosmetics e-commerce platform. Now, Pappy Zhang has amassed nearly 12 million followers on Weibo, which is the Chinese microblogging platform, for her fast-paced, humorous rants about ordinary life. The production value is very low, and the videos appear to be filmed in a cluttered dorm room or a small apartment, but they look authentic. Early this week, the videos were pulled off Yuku, a video platform. Regulators objected to Zhang's swearing and demanded that she edit out obscenities before reposting them. And all this hullabaloo, which was really widely covered in the media and discussed online, raised a profile even more and generated buzz for the auction. For an ambitious new advertiser who wanted to make a statement, the auction buy was an interesting one because they've got so much publicity, they'll not need to spend anything on traditional paid media for a long time. Another interesting takeaway is that um, local brands led the bidding, an example of how they've become much, much bolder than multinationals. You know, generally speaking, Western brands are far more conservative. Chinese brands are far more entrepreneurial in pretty much everything, not just in marketing, but also in sales channels and new product launches. So... We really need to lift our game. And when you look at most advertising and most promotion today, it's pretty bloody lame and tame and not adventurous and certainly not um, being out on the edge. My guest today, after this next short break, is Wayne Berry. He's a CSP, which is a certified speaking professional. He's a top gun sales coach and a highly in-demand speaker on sales, negotiating and sales management. And don't forget, every business revolves around No, excuse me. Every business revolves around a sale. Without a sale, you don't have a business. So um, it's really critical. Now each year Wayne Berry's seminars and workshops are attended by more than 20,000 sales and business people. And eight years ago, he changed his business model from the traditional conference speaker training, you know, where you're flying everywhere and you're staying in hotels every night, to an online model, which has killed him. And Wayne now licenses top gun sales coaches all over the planet. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Wayne immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Now, this is the segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs and people involved in disciplines that help us to be more effective in business. As we know, now over 90% of businesses fail. And if you take into account businesses that just make enough money to pay people wages as failing, we're up to 99%. And one of the reasons is that there's, you know, you might have a great idea and you might be great at perfecting that idea, but there are a lot of other disciplines that you need to be able to master if you want to be successful in business. You've got to be good at employing people, you've got to be good at financials, you've got to be good at marketing, you've got to be good at selling, you've got to be able to put a business plan together. There's a whole range of things that you need to do and they're mostly things that people who are entrepreneurs don't want to do, (laughs) I'm one of those, and hate doing. They're things that, you know, they're not fun. So we need to listen to interviews with people that I that I speak to and others speak to, read books by um, people who are successful and people who get mentors around you. That's another important area. So we can fill in the holes that we have in our own repertoire and help us become more successful. So in these interviews, I try to find out um, what makes these people tick, what makes them different, what makes them successful. How did they overcome the challenges that all of us have? You know, it doesn't matter what sort of business you're in. You could be created a new app or you could have opened a dry cleaning shop or you could have done any one of a million things and you have the same challenges that everybody else has. So this gives us an opportunity to learn from others who are successful. My guest today is Wayne Berry a Top Gun sales coach and a highly in-demand speaker on sales negotiating and sales management. He's a best-selling author of four books, Negotiating in the Age of Integrity. Really? (laughs) (laughs) How to get the best deal every time, how to get the best sale every time, and how to lead and motivate a Top Gun sales team. And these books are now sold in 13 countries. He speaks at over 200 conferences a year and his seminars and workshops are attended by more than 20,000 sales and business people. He's a prolific producer of audio and DVD video programs on selling, sales management and negotiating. And uh, his Top Gun Sales Guru Q&A app has gone viral internationally. Now, about eight years ago, he changed his business model from the traditional conference speaker training and traveling all the time and to essentially well he still does all that he's essentially changed to an online model where people now do his program online view videos and interact with a live top gun sales coach and this produces results way beyond what he was obtaining before He's ranked in the top 7% of professional speakers in the world by the National Speakers Association. And Wayne, like myself, is a certified speaking professional, of which there is a limited number around the planet. Wayne, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. How are you? Well, thank you, Bob. Good to join you from Melbourne, Australia, and a very generous introduction you did there. I certainly appreciate that. Interesting what you're saying saying about businesses and the challenges of business. You know, I I believe that uh, the problems of many small to medium-sized businesses can be solved with two words, possibly three. Those two words are sell more or possibly sell more now. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Because I see so many business people um, have a great idea, they've got great technical skills, um, many things they're doing right. They simply are not selling enough, yeah. and uh, it's not necessarily a skill that comes naturally. No, it, it isn't. Um, it's quite difficult when you think about, and the more books you read about selling, the more confused you get, but let's get to that in a minute. What, what's your background that's led you to training some of the top salespeople around the world? Okay. Yeah, good, good question. I, I come from a middle-class uh, working family in Brisbane, Australia, and I watched my mum and dad struggle all their life. 
both worked in factories. So Mum had to, in fact, get a job in order to support me and support the family well enough combined with my dad's income so I could even just continue in uh, in high school and then uh, she wanted me to go to university. Um, look, I've got to tell you, I was in that half of the class that made the top half possible all the way through high school. I hated, <laughs> hated school. The, the thought of doing university was uh, too much for my, my mind at the time. And I, I wanted success and in my naive way at 17 years of age, <clears throat> uh, I, I measured it purely as money and I knew I had none and I thought it might be an idea to, to have a career that would make some. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, I looked around at the options, you know, the, the, the people who would go to university, the doctors, the dentists, the lawyers, the, the, those professions and six or seven years to achieve that seemed like too long but there were another group of people who were doing extremely well and the reason I would know they were doing well is I saw the cars they were driving and I was literally going up to people in the street as a 17 year old kid and saying well, what do you do for a living and I encountered some doctors dentists lawyers but there were another group of people who said well I'm a businessman so well, what, what's that and they told me others would say I'm in sales and yeah. if you remember in school, we're told you've got to get good grades in order to, you know, get get good job. And I said, well, like, what 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 qualifications do you need to be in sales? And they said none. And I thought, well, I can do that. Uh, <laughs> I'm so, well qualified for that. <laughs> exactly. And I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to get into sales, um, I. I want to join a company where there's a future, a good product, and preferably a company that would give me good training. And I chose the IT industry before it was called IT. It was called the computer industry. And I bowled up to IBM in Brisbane. Having done my research, I decided IBM was definitely the company to to join if you wanted to be in the computer industry. And I'm talking the 1970s now. And they took one look at me and said, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 17. They said, you're too young, go away. Um, I went to another company called the Xerox corporation i laid my my sales story on their receptionist and they said the same thing to cut a long story short i finally uh got a, a quick interview with the hr manager of a company called the ncr corporation then known as national cash register though getting yep. involved in computers out of date in ohio they'd set up a data center i sold myself really well to the uh, the hr manager he said, you're far too young to be in sales, but I'm about to advertise a job for a sales support person. I said, what's that? He said, you work with the salespeople until you're 25 years of age. If you're good, we'll move you into sales because that's the international policy laid down from Dayton, Ohio. I, I grabbed the opportunity. Um, the immediate supervisor that I was working for after about six months went on three months leave. I gave myself a promotion. Uh, to sales because no one much cared what this kid was doing. I literally went out, started calling on businesses in the in the main streets of Brisbane. Uh, got the attention of my sales manager, who took me under his wing and said, "Look, I will train you from seven o'clock till eight o'clock every morning. If you're prepared to do that, go out and use the ideas, and let's see how you go." He gave me a, a, a territory on the far side of town where they didn't speak very much English. Uh, <laughs> he sent me where I could do the least amount of damage. damage. Yeah, but he he did train me and he said, this is the deal. If you miss a morning, that's it. No more. And over the next 12 months, I was there 7 o'clock every single morning. Uh, I attended when he didn't turn up, but I was there. I was naive and young. I did what he said, exactly what he said. If he, He told me how to make a call. I went and did it. And it was just pure determination and attitude. And within the, the first 12 months of doing that, I was actually in the top 10% of sales performers internationally for the NCR Corporation. And they sent me to my first international convention in Las Vegas, which yeah. <laughs> as, as an 18 year old kid, it's named in cool. Caesar's Palace. I thought, wow, this is sales. Um, so so that, that's a quick sort of how I got into sales. And I, I've been passionate about it ever since, Bob, and uh, I've moved up through the ranks and I I now train salespeople because I think it's one of the the greatest professions in the world. Someone once said nothing happens until someone sells something, and that's absolutely true. That's true, and you don't have a business unless you've got good sales. You know, you can have the best product in the world, but you're not selling any bastards, anything. You've got zero. Absolutely right. Um, You know, I'm... um, I think one of the things that it did teach you was to be persistent. One of the problems with most salespeople that, you know, when I go in and consult with a company, most um, 
the biggest problem I find with most salespeople is they're not persistent enough. You know, if they if they don't get a sale the first one, two, or three tries, they they kind of give up. Um, and uh, I think what you learned at NCR was you've got to be persistent. You've got to keep trying. You've got to keep knocking on those doors. But um, it seems to be a failure of a lot of salespeople. Well, look, attitude, as you you know, don't know, Bob, and I'm sure you teach that attitude is 80% of our success in life. Yep. You know, we've got the right attitude. But I would say persistence combined with an intelligent approach. Mm. I mean, we can be persistent, we can go out and persevere and do a whole lot of contacting, contacting, contacting people. But if we're using the wrong strategy, all we're going to get is a lot of knockbacks and a high degree of rejection. Yes. Um, so what we teach is, like, have a great attitude uh, to apply what you learn, but let's learn some strategies that are proven and that work. And I think that many people in business, um, they, you know, they, they realise possibly they've even gone through university to, to learn all sorts of things, but they essentially they, they don't seem to understand that that education should continue after they leave university and if they're in business, they, they need to learn how to sell. There's, there's no really, well, there are some people that are sort of natural sales, but all they've done is they've kind of figured out what works. Most of us need to learn step by step uh, what to do. And sales is a process. It, it's, it's not just the gift of the gab. In, far, in fact, some of the most successful salespeople are the people who um, speak little and listen a lot. Yep, so I agree. It, it is a process, step one, step two, step three, and it's a matter of learning the process. Okay, if you, if you go through my house, mm. you'll find two rooms that are floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall business books. I've mm. got business books on every bloody thing and I've got I think I reckon I've got more sales and marketing books than Barnes and Noble it yeah. seems that every person who's ever on a sales team um, puts out a book with five tips or ten tips to magical success or something yeah. what makes Wayne Berry so different I mean why aren't you just one of these thousand other wombats that I've got on my wall <laughs> <laughs> or on my shelves okay Look, I, th I think the major thing that um, I've learned and I uh, incorporate in, in what we do with the people that we work with, it's all about implementation. It's about acting on what you learn. I mean, so many people are seminar junkies. Um, and by the way, my background is I, I progressed to the point where I, I went into business for myself. Uh, I, I moved from sales into sales management. I was in sales management by 21 years of age. Uh, in my very early 20s, I decided to take all that I knew about sales management and the real key to success being um, learn about selling. And yeah. I set up my business uh, 38 years ago and I started training salespeople. And that got me involved in uh, working with some amazing American speakers that I used to bring to Australia. People like Brian Tracy. I was one of the first to bring Brian Tracy uh, just after he moved down to San Diego from Canada. Yeah. He was introduced to me by Dr. Dennis Waitley, another yeah. gentleman I used to bring out. So I got to work with Dennis Waitley, Jim Brown, um, yep, yep. Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, and the greats. The greats. And, yeah, they're really amazing. And many people go to, I used to go to those workshops in the 1980s when I would promote them here in this part of the world. And they collect information and they collect books and they collect, in those days, cassette programs. But they wouldn't read the books. <laughs> they wouldn't listen to the yep, cassettes. Yep. They wouldn't act on what they learned uh, yep. or what they had. And I think that's the major thing. When we work with salespeople and business people today, um, Initially, well, firstly, when we, we talk to a business, we say, look, top-down sales coaching may not be for you. It's only for the serious-minded professional who's prepared to act on what they learn. Are you are you one of those? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we go through an assessment with somebody before they come onto one of our programs because we can give them the training, but training doesn't translate to results. It's training plus action and a commitment to that action on a regular basis with accountability that will lead to results. So I guess where we're different is um, my model in working with companies and individuals these days is more of a coaching model, Bob, than it is a training module uh, model. Right. Uh, training, training is where you get the information that's optional as to whether you do anything with it. Yeah. Coaching, for me anyway, or with me, it's not optional. It is mandatory. You must act on the ideas 
Right, uh, right. Or I kick you in the bum, and so do my coaches, and that, that's what we work on. So, what's the what are the major changes to the way we go about selling today compared with say two thousand or nineteen ninety? What's been the progression in sales sales techniques? I mean, people have changed. People are much more, you know. To, 20 years ago, there was a lot more monologue. Today, people want dialogue. They want to participate. They want to exchange ideas. They want to. Um, so, what, what do you see the major changes to how people have gone to go about selling today as against 15 years ago? Yeah, well, look, consumers, and you and I are a consumer, we are much more educated now about um, the products and services available. We, we get on the internet, we do our own research, uh, so we're much better educated, and, and so it is too with, with businesses and dealing with their prospects. Um, so we're dealing with people who know more about what the options are that are available. We need to stand out from our competitors by um, the kind of service that we offer and our approach. So as opposed to um, the way some people used to be quite successful in sales years years ago uh, by doing what I used to call, uh, what I've called show and tell. All I do is meet someone, show them, tell them, and it's a numbers game. If you make enough presentations, you'll make some sales. Today, we have to be much more consultative. Uh, We need to, um, I think, respect the knowledge that consumers and, and our prospects have much, much more than we ever have before because they won't put up with a show and tell. We need no, to be consulted. We need to ask questions, listen, truly identify a prospect's needs, make the right recommendation and do it with integrity. Uh, and I think that's the key. And the integrity is the key. It's building the longer-term relationships. Um, that That's what makes the major difference is the, the approach. I, I often say there's five generations of salespeople in the marketplace Generation one is the quote giver. Yep. In other words, someone phones the business and says, oh, what's your best price on such and such? And the quote giver gives a price and thinks they're doing their job. Yep. And, and, of course, the prospect says, well, look, leave it with me. I'll get back to you. And then they phone 20 other places. Then we've got uh, the product flogger. Now, they think their job is to flog products. So someone phones and makes an inquiry and they start rabbiting on about everything their product does without asking any questions to work out what their client needs. Again, they waste a lot of time. They don't provide very good service. They don't really help the client much. They give you information. The third generation is what I call the order taker. They are very, very passive. They they will give information. They'll they'll give a quote, but they won't actually be proactive and ask for the the business at all. We often find these in retail stores. I'm sure you've had the experience of walking Mm. and looking around and no one particularly wants to to ask you do you need any help uh, they'll reluctantly take your money at the end if you go over <laughs> they're an order it's taker true. absolutely it's true. Now, generation four is the problem solver and this is where we start to get into professional selling the problem solver who goes and looks for people who have challenges and problems in their business or in their life and offers solutions um these are the people who are doing extraordinarily well today. They shine out like a beacon in the wilderness compared to all of the other salespeople. Yeah. Uh, Generation 5 goes one step further. Generation 5 is what I call the friend in the business. They have been the consultative salesperson, they've been the problem solver, and they form an ongoing relationship. And I'm sure you've got some friends in the business uh, in your life that you go to before sure. you make a move about anything, you know, if, if, if you need some help, if you need some legal advice, I'm sure you've got a friend in the business. This this person you talk to, you trust. If you've got some uh, financial uh, advice you need, you, you go to your friend in the business who may well be your accountant. And, and just those two professions, by the way, these days, those are still professions that require selling and the most successful lawyers, accounting firms, are people who know how to solve people's problems, not simply do accounting and do legal work. They have the human interaction, the the ability to sell their services and explain the value that they offer. Yeah, with the, with the fees they charge, they have to, though, don't they? <laughs> well, well, again, it comes down to value for money. No, um, I, agree. I agree. I know your your fees, your speaking fees are high because you offer value for money. 
I, I, I believe the same thing. We have positioned ourselves at the high end in terms of the work that we do. Um, we are way beyond um, any other people doing this kind of work, but we offer extraordinary results. Plus, we go one step further. We actually offer a money-back guarantee. If, if someone working with us does not get sufficient additional business to cover their investment in the one-year coaching, then they're entitled to a refund. And I'm very proud to say we've never had to make a refund. We, we do deliver good value. So it's value for money. It's not, it's not price. If you focus on price, there'll always be someone cheaper. It's, um, it's a recognised fact that in every decision everybody makes, we make it emotionally and justify it pragmatically. It doesn't matter what the decision is and it doesn't matter whether it's a personal decision or whether it's a business decision. So how do you create the emotional scenario to set the scene for a sale? What techniques do you use to to find those um, emotional niches that you can that you can utilize? Okay, look, um, in consultative selling, what we teach is um, to do a diagnosis. I often say that selling is like uh, should follow the same sort of process of a doctor, and I, I call it becoming a doctor of sales. Uh, if you go to a doctor, of course, the first thing a doctor will do is conduct a thorough examination. They'll then conduct, uh, conduct a diagnosis where they compare the information they got from you with their knowledge, yes. and then they'll, make, then they'll do a prescription. So three steps, examination, diagnosis, prescription. So what we say is we should do the same thing. And in the medical profession, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And so it should be in the sales profession to just go and see someone and say, uh, look, I know exactly what you need. And they make a recommendation and it's wrong. That wastes everyone's time. So to get back to what you said there, how do we motivate somebody to want to buy from us? And this is what truly professional salespeople do today. They try to get in the emotional um, get an emotional response from their prospects so their prospect wants to buy from them more than they wish to sell to their prospect. How do you do that? Intelligent questions. We call them diagnosis questions, Bob, and they're not a random set of questions. They're a sequence of questions that, if, if asked properly, will move somebody from indifference to being disturbed enough about their current situation to want a solution. Um, it's, I, I can probably illustrate that best with an example. Many, many years ago, I, uh, I mean like 20, 25 years ago, I was doing a, uh, a presentation for a group of insurance salespeople. And back in that era, insurance salespeople were very, very aggressively selling in life insurance. Yep. And du- during the presentation, which was a, a one-day workshop, uh, quite a number of insurance salespeople came up to me and my, my business partner and said, hey, uh, how's your life insurance? And I'd say, good, thank you. <laughs> but we had a, a really um, interesting, uh, very successful salesperson come up to my business partner and started asking some questions. And one of the questions he said was, hey, I'm really enjoying today. Um, <clears throat> how much does Wayne get for each of these presentations? And my business partner told him, and he said, well, that's, 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 that's a substantial amount of money. How many presentations does he do each month? And she told him, she said, well, that's quite a number of presentations. So how much income is that per month? Now, of course, he knew the answer to the question, but by asking her and having her think about it and give the answer, she was becoming involved. Yep. He said, well, that, that's, that's really good. And I guess over six months, that'll be how much? And she gave a figure. And then he asked a question that was a little disturbing. Does Wayne ever get ill and is unable to present? And she said, well, sometimes. And he said, well, what happens then? Well, we have to cancel. We have to give our client a refund. And he said, well, when you do that, how much does that cost you? And, of course, he knew the answer, but she had to give the answer. And he said, well, what if Wayne had an accident and wasn't able to present for, uh, say, a month? What would that cost you? Now, up to that point, the uh, birds were singing, the sky was blue, she was having a great day. She suddenly moved from being indifferent about life insurance to being disturbed at the thought of what would happen if we had to cancel everything for a month. He said, what, what if it was serious and it was like three months? 
How much would that cost you? And they said, well, what if, what if, what if, heaven forbid, but what if Wayne was crossing the street, didn't see the car, and then, you know, got knocked down, he's never coming back. I mean, it's all over. How would that affect you personally and your business? Now, suddenly he had her attention. He had her emotionally involved sure. and very disturbed. <laughs> and very shortly, there, very shortly thereafter, I was worth a lot more dead than alive. To my business. <laughs> a bit for a while. But the, the point of the story is that we need to emotionally disturb, I believe, our clients, our prospects, our potential customers about their current situation before they're prepared to listen to a solution. And it could well be they have an existing supplier. So we need to disturb them about the relationship with their existing supplier. Or if they don't have an existing supplier and we've got a new idea for them, we need to disturb them about their current situation. And we know we've done it well when they say to us, well, gee, Bob, what do you think we should do? Yeah. Now they're ready to hear a presentation. We have a sequence of questions that achieves that aim. And the, and the very, very first question is, so what's the major challenge you're facing around whatever the, whatever the issue is that you feel you might be able to help them with? And, and that gets them started. If they, they then will start talking about the challenges they're having. And then there are a sequence of questions that follow that that will get them to the point, if you've done it well, where they say, well, gee, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should do to overcome this challenge? That's smart selling. Um, one of my favourite all-time sayings is by Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham Lincoln said that um, if he had eight hours to cut down a tree, he'd spend six hours sharpening the axe. Mm, absolutely. Now, in my experience, most salespeople just start chopping. They'll yep. jump on the phone. Um, you know, before I'll call a prospect, I want to know what school they went to, how old they are, what qualifications they have, whether I got a family, preferably what sort of what sports teams they support. I want to know everything about them so that I can involve them emotionally and, and get on the same page as them. But I find that doing their homework is one of the biggest problems facing not doing their homework is one of the biggest problems facing most salespeople. Do you find that? Look, absolutely, Bob. Um, sadly, I think in this day and age, um, we become attuned to instant gratification. Yes. Uh, it, it's got to happen quickly. And uh, I don't think it is the way for, for establishing long-term business relationships. It is doing the research. Uh, just, just before we came on to do this today, I was doing a video conference with a group of people from various parts of Australia with one of the businesses that we're, we're working with. And we were talking about this exact topic. Why is it that some of them are going so well? and some of them are not going so well. And what it came down to was the, the people who are doing well are very, very thorough. And uh, their, their target market is uh, real estate agents for um, real estate photography. Right. And the most successful ones are doing what you're suggesting. They find out who the principal is of the company. They find out how long they've been in business. They find out how many real estate agents they have, where their offices are, where they sit in the marketplace. They go and look at their, their online advertising, the photography that's being used, the visual marketing that's being used. They know all about the business before they even yeah. make the approach. And then they make an intelligent approach using a script. I'll say that again, yep. using a script. Yep. Um, and they get a predictable outcome. See, again, most business people and salespeople, they don't like using a script. In fact, they even tell me, hey, you know, scripts, that, that's just not me. I, I, I can't use a script. And the interesting thing is, Bob, we all have scripts. Um, even the person yep. who just makes a phone call and does it badly, they're using a script. It's just not a very good one. It comes out of their head. Yeah. So, you know, we all use scripts. It's the matter of improving your script so you say the right thing more frequently. Yeah, I don't necessarily make write scripts, but I do make notes so that they're, they're there when I'm, on the, I'm talking to somebody or when I'm on the phone or whatever. So how's your model for business? I know your model for business and lifestyle changed after you were ill a few years yeah. ago. Um, so just tell us quickly how how you change the business and how hard that transition from um, physically going out and doing something and then doing it uh, online. Okay. Um, my, model, my model of business was a traditional training, um, keynote speak, speaker type uh, model where I would uh, get on and off airplanes, travel from city to city to city, in and out of hotels, making presentations. And it might seem really glamorous and wonderful and the fees are great and you make a lot of money, but it can be very, as you know, very tiring and taxing on your health. Yep. And it did. It started to catch up with me. I became very, very tired, very exhausted, and then I had some major health issues that stopped me dead in my tracks. Now, just 
just before that, I had shot all of my uh, video programs in live workshops and I had started to create an online program. Then the ill health happened. I had no choice. There was no turning back. And that was probably one of the best, worst things that's ever happened in my life because yeah. it gave, gave me no choice. It forced me to change the model. So uh, the, the way it works these days Instead of me simply going and seeing a company and making a presentation to 20 or 30 or 100 or 200 of their people about selling strategies and then getting on a plane and leaving town saying, okay, you've got the list now, you've got your to-do list, you've got your action commitments, you know what you need to do, go do it, Um, good luck and goodbye. Mm. Um, You know, some people will take that information, those strategies and use them, most will not. Mm -hmm. Now, We used to actually have a model that involved 10 individual sessions. So I'd very often go back to the same company one week later and do another session on a different topic over a range of 10 weeks. But it was still optional, basically, up to the individuals as to whether they went out and took action on the ideas. I used to brief the sales managers on how to follow through locally and uh, hold their people accountable for taking action, but most didn't do it. With our new system... It is a coaching model. It's not training. So they they view the training videos online and they interact with a live sales coach over a period of 12 months, week after week after week. And the sales coach's role is helping them to adapt the strategies they're learning on the videos and implementing them in the business. There's weekly accountability. So one module per week. There are, in fact, 12 modules uh, they do in the first 12 weeks on the variety of subjects from prospecting, first presentation, uh, first meeting diagnosis questions, making a presentation, closing the sale, handling objections, the full gambit of skills, very comprehensive. But our coach is working with the individual to put the ideas into action week after week after week. They set performance standards with the individual and with the company up front. How many prospecting calls will they make per week? How many first meetings will they have per week? How many presentations will they make per week? And they hold them accountable to do what they know they should do. Because if you think about it, sports stars all have a coach who essentially refine the process for for the athlete and then make sure that the athlete is disciplined, self disciplined enough to take action on what they should be doing week after week after week to perfect the skill. Sure. And, and we, we do exactly the same with business people. The results are extraordinary, way beyond training alone. And it's a model that um, gives me a wonderful lifestyle and that I can coach from anywhere in the world as I travel. Uh, our clients can be anywhere in the world and similarly, uh, my coaches. I now work with a licensing system, so I license um, people to become top gun sales coaches. And my three criteria is they must have a successful track record in sales of at least 10 years, a successful track record in sales management of at least five years, and they must have had at least five years being in business for themselves. That way, they're qualified to advise and coach. When we're out of time, but that, that the system certainly works, mm. and um, so if anybody is listening out there and wants to get some training for themselves or for their team, at, then um, Wayne is the guy to speak to. Wayne, thanks very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. Now, you can connect with Wayne at topgunba.com.au, so topgunba.com.au. Dot com dot au. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network, and I'll be back with you with our email segment of the show right after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs this week, being broadcast from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where technology meets 
entertainment. Last week, and frequently, I talk about mentors and the need for entrepreneurs to surround themselves with good mentors. And I mentioned, how do you select the right mentors? So um, I talked about how I um, determined my mentors years ago, and I started touching on the main things I've learned about finding a mentor. And the first one was um, to fully understand your industry, evaluate all of the disciplines you need in your business, management, HR, business strategy, marketing, financial, social media, advertising, etc., etc., and determine where your strengths and your weaknesses lie. You know, in addition to a firm knowledge of your field, you need to understand how successful businesses operate if you want to find a mentor. And it's important to bring something substantial to the table before you approach potential mentors. Secondly, work on your emotional intelligence. Because of the informal nature of mentorships, you need emotional intelligence if you want to find a mentor. You need to spend considerable time with them because it's informal and at the end of the day, it all comes down to likability. They need to like you. You need to be transparent. And you need to have integrity. So don't try to be somebody you're not. Don't think you know it all. Be honest and humble and don't try too hard. Thirdly, approach your potential mentor the right way. But remember, you know, you can find people who could mentor you everywhere but you need to find the right person not just any person so if you're contacting somebody for the first time try to keep it short and simple be totally honest and tell them where you're at and how you believe their advice could be beneficial to you but remember they're required to provide advice when needed They're not there to run an area of your business. You have to be compelling for somebody to want to spend time with you, but you want advice when you need it. Fourthly, you need to add value. So when the other person responds to you, start thinking about how you may be able to add value to what they do. And if you want to add value and have them respect you and make their advice worthwhile, you need to have extensive knowledge in your industry as we discussed earlier you can't add much value if you don't have the knowledge or the experience most importantly you must be mindful of the other person's time always keep in mind that the other person doesn't owe you anything and never will you're looking for a mutually beneficial relationship You know, if you ever want to set up a meeting, do it when they have time and wherever they are so that it doesn't inconvenience them. It shows that you're serious about learning, will do whatever it takes, and most importantly, that you have some emotional intelligence. The sixth key to finding a mentor is to take your business seriously. If you're approaching someone who is very successful in what they do, You can bet that they take their job very seriously. And if you want to meet them with the same intensity and passion, and if you take your business very seriously, that can be infectious. Finally, stay in touch. Keep them apprised of your progress. Show them how you appreciate their advice and how it may have helped. I speak to my mentors every couple of months, and I email them with updates every so often or I contact them when I really need help with something. But don't overdo it. Finding a mentor is not a formal thing, so don't treat it like one. Mentorship is like friendship, and that's what your mentor eventually becomes, your friend. Not a staff member, not an employee, a friend who advises. You've got to always keep that in mind. Now, I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're pleased to have been bringing you this show since we're pleased to be bringing you this show since 2011. And if you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. 
go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. We're just finalising a new website, which I hope will be up in a couple of weeks. We'll let everybody know, both on air and we'll also send out to our um, newsletter list. I hope you like it. I'll get feedback from you. In the meanwhile, remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope, if you're not really living on the edge, you're just taking up too much damn space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week while I'll again broadcast from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.